The message this morning is titled, My Grace is Sufficient for You. If those words sound familiar, those are the words of the Lord to Paul in 2 Corinthians, but they are so fitting for our verses here in 1 Corinthians that that is our title. And this is 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10. As you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge a few things. First of all, Happy Father's Day. Fathers, thank you so much for all that you do for the Lord, uh, for your families, and for our church. I also would like to wish you guys a happy Juneteenth. So Juneteenth is a national holiday uh, where we celebrate the end of slavery in our country. So I'm especially thinking about um, our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, and we are celebrating Juneteenth alongside them. And certainly not on the same level as those things. Uh, This is actually the one-year anniversary of my wife and I's first ever visit to Prairie Bible Church. I was looking back through my text messages, and on June 18th of last year, uh, me, Lisa, and Craig were trying to connect about how to find each other at the airport. So this weekend, one year ago, uh, was our wife's, my, me and my wife's first visit, and I just got to say, you guys have made us feel so loved. And this year has even far exceeded the high expectations we had, and Lord willing, we are looking forward to many more years here with you guys. Thanks. So let's, let's turn our attention now to the message. In 1725, in London, England, a man named John Newton was born. Now, John, as a young boy, was taught Bible stories by his mother, but tragically, when John was just nine, his mom passed away. So suddenly, John was looking for direction in his life. Between his mom's early death and his dad's frequent absence, John couldn't find any direction. Until one day, that direction came with a forced hand uh, when John Newton was kidnapped as a boy and forced to serve in the British Royal Navy. In fact, he tried to escape that fate, but was caught and forced to remain aboard. John Newton's life got darker and darker when in in his 20s, he started to serve in the African slave trade. Whether it was the horrors of the African slave trade or it was frequent illnesses, or frequent storms aboard, John Newton was depressed and delving further and further into darkness and degradation. He was looking for a light. That light showed up to John Newton in the form of Jesus Christ and the gospel, and it transformed his life. And by the time Newton was 39 years old, he had not only come to Christ, but he'd become a pastor. And he would serve out the rest of his life in faithfulness to the Lord, But I got to imagine that Newton never forgot his broken past. And it was with those things in mind, I would imagine, that John Newton penned the words to the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. It begins this way, and if you know it, you can say it with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. But now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. John Newton understood that he needed God's grace to cover his broken past, to help him face the present situations he was in, and to look around at the world and still have hope for the future. 
And that's our take-home message this morning. If you're taking notes, jot this down. There's also bulletins on your seats with fill-in-the-blanks you can use for notes. This message uh, overarches the entire message, and it's this. God's grace is sufficient for my past, present, and future. I don't know if you're here this morning and you're still feeling deeply ashamed over a broken past. I want to remind you this morning that in the same way that John Newton felt that way, God is able to redeem the most broken past. And we're going to see that this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in a present situation that looks like a mountain compared to the strength that you have. I want to remind you this morning that God's grace is sufficient to overcome that. Or maybe you're looking at our broken world this morning and you're struggling to have hope for the future. I want to remind you this morning from the Word of God that God's grace is sufficient to face even the darkest future. God's grace is sufficient for me. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. We're just going to focus on these two verses this morning. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. We are nearing the end of Corinthians, and here is what Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. These are God's words for us today. And if you're taking notes, we're going to walk through three points here. They're really simple. Here's the first one. God's grace is sufficient for my past. God is in the business of redeeming broken pasts. We see it in our lives. We see it in the lives of Christians around us. And that all started when the resurrected Christ showed up to the earliest believers. We see it in Scripture. If you are here this morning and you are still feeling ashamed for your past, but you've given your life to Christ, I want to remind you that God can not only redeem your broken past, but He can redeem it and then use you for great purposes. Again, it says in verse 9, Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Perhaps you already know the apostle Paul's story, but let me refresh you. It's always a good one to hear again. Before the apostle Paul was Paul, he was a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. (laughs) Saul of Tarsus grew up a Roman citizen and he also grew up a Pharisee. Pharisaism was the strictest sect of Judaism, okay? Their their adherence to the law was the strictest. And Paul studied as a young man at the school of Gamaliel. This was the top Ivy League Pharisee school. But something started to happen in Saul as a young man. You see, there was a stream of of Pharisaism uh, that was zealots or zealous ones. And their view was that in order for the Messiah to return to Israel, all sin and unrighteousness had to be stomped out of Israel and out of the Israelite people. And for this reason, when Jesus Christ came on the scene, Saul saw him as perhaps the greatest threat to Judaism in its purest form. He saw Jesus as a seducer of the Jewish people, seducing them away from Yahweh, the one true God. 
He saw the way. That's what we know as Christianity. He saw it as a dangerous heresy leading Jews away from God. And it's for this reason it says in Acts 8 that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's why it says that he was standing at the martyrdom of the first Christian, Stephen, as those who stoned Stephen to death casted their cloaks at his feet. He was endorsing Stephen's murder. That's why it says that in Acts, he was still breathing out threats and murder as he went to the Jewish authorities, asking for papers to persecute Christians in farther and farther lands. In Saul's eyes, he was running the race well for Yahweh. But it was that fateful day on the road to Damascus when suddenly a bright light shone around Saul. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, on his face I would imagine, said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And out of that experience, Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul, confounding the Jews That this man, the purest Jew, had now converted to the way, converted to Jesus. But just as John Newton, I would imagine, never forgot his broken past in the African slave trade, I would imagine that the Apostle Paul never forgot when he was Saul and what God rescued him out of. Saul's not the only person we hear these stories about. In fact, in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 15, Paul is recounting the people who the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ first appeared to. She's not listed there, but the first person Jesus appeared to was Mary Magdalene. Okay, Uh, the Lord appeared to Mary Magdalene immediately after being raised from the dead. And that's interesting because Mary Magdalene formerly, it says she had seven unclean spirits. Seven in uh, Jewish literature and in the Bible denotes completeness. What it basically means is that Mary Magdalene was totally and completely demon-possessed. And Jesus Christ cast those seven demons out and Mary went on to live a life of faithfulness to the Lord and the Lord showed up to Mary right after he was raised from the dead. It says in verse 5 that the resurrected Lord appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, You mean the Peter who just denied Christ three times right before this? Peter the denier? Yes. The Lord Jesus Christ showed up next to Peter. It then says he showed up to the twelve. The twelve are the disciples. They become eleven because Judas had betrayed the Lord. But you mean to tell me that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, showed up to the twelve who just before this had scattered out of his presence when he was arrested? Yes. He wouldn't appear to those 12. You mean the 12 among whom were Peter, James, and John, who in the Garden of Gethsemane fell asleep when the Lord was sweating drops of blood and anguish and he needed his best friends the most? Yes, those 12. You mean the 12, some of whom doubted when they saw Jesus in Matthew 28? Yes, some of the doubters. He appeared to them. It goes on to say that he appeared to James. This is not James, the brother of John. This is James, the brother of our Lord. James, the brother of Jesus. That's also interesting because in the Gospel of John, it says about Jesus' brothers that they were not believing in him. You mean the Lord appeared to James, the unbeliever? Yes. 
It says in the Gospel of Mark that during Jesus' life, his family said he was out of his mind. You mean James who called Jesus crazy? Yes. Are you getting the pattern here? If you look around uh, at the people in your life and you see God's redeeming work in them, if you look at your own life, you see God's redeeming work in you, it didn't start with us. Look at the group of people that Jesus appeared to. You know what that teaches us? God is in the business of redeeming broken pasts. And certainly, he was with Paul. Look at verse 8. This is Paul recounting his own conversion. He said, last of all, as to one untimely born, that word literally in the Greek means a miscarriage. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul understood that he was only where he was because of God's grace. That's why the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it begs the question, why did God appear to these first? Aren't there people out there with better resumes for God to appear to and use? Well, I don't know all the reasons. I mean, grace is a mystery, isn't it? But I know one reason, to magnify God's grace. You can write down 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 16. That's just a reference you can look up later. In that passage, Paul says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. This is Paul speaking about himself. He said, But I received mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In other words, he's saying, Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. But I received mercy. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Why does God show us grace? To magnify his grace, to magnify his patience, his forbearance with us. My question for you is, does your past include some of those things? Have you at a former time been impure like Mary Magdalene? Have you been a denier of Christ like Peter? Have you been cowardly or a doubter like some of the twelve? Have you been an unbeliever or thought Jesus was crazy like James? Have you made life really hard for Christians around you like Paul? My past includes some of those things. There was a time in my life as a young man when I had totally strayed from the Lord. And I can relate to Paul's words in verse 8 when he says, As one untimely born, the Lord also appeared to me. I got saved as a, as a young man, but God really regenerated my heart in, in my 20s. And sometimes when I'm up here, I have to ask myself the question, why has God chosen to place me up here as one of your pastors? I mean, there had to be people with better resumes than me to do this. And I don't know all the reasons. I still don't, but I know one of them, to magnify God's grace and patience because I can stand up here and tell you, I know I don't deserve this. I hope you can too because none of us deserve it. But as long as I'm up here, I'm going to magnify God's grace. I'm going to keep telling others, you know what? I didn't deserve his grace, but he called me and now what am I supposed to do? 
Well, that's leading into our next point. What do we do with this grace? What do we do with God's redemption of our broken past? Here's the next point. God's grace is sufficient for my present. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. What do we do with this grace? We work hard for the Lord. You know, I worked in finance before I was in ministry. Uh, I worked in investments. And what they taught us was uh, the key to investments, one of the keys, is you, you want to buy low and sell high, right? And I remember working in investments and tying that into how I thought about God. And man, I, even prepping this message, I thought, man, God knows how to buy low. <laughs> God knows when to step in, doesn't he? It's like when the, the prodigal son was feeding on the pig's pods and then he came to his senses. Or Paul, as he's getting ready to persecute more Christians. God knows when to step in. I found in my life he's seldom early, but he's never late. He's always on time. And thankfully, he never sells because we get eternal life. But what did Paul mean when he said his grace toward me was not in vain? That word in vain means empty or worthless. What Paul is essentially saying is don't let God's grace go to waste. Don't let God redeem you and do nothing with that. It's pretty safe to say Paul wasn't a bad investment, right? And what the Lord is saying to us this morning through his word is don't be a, good, don't be a bad investment. That's my question for you. Is God getting a good return on investment in you? Are you doing something with the grace he's shown you? You know, thinking about those people we just talked about, God got a pretty good return on investment with them. We talked about Mary Magdalene, right? She was redeemed out of a life of impurity. And she went on to live a life of exemplary faithfulness. We see nowhere in the New Testament, uh, Mary never returns to her life of sin. There's nothing said about that. It said she lives a life of faithfulness. You think about Peter. Peter went from denier to preacher. In fact, Peter, his first sermon in Acts 2, it says 3,000 souls came to the Lord. It's a pretty good return on investment. You think about the twelve. If the 12 had been cowardly before scattering from the Lord, the 12 went across the known world and died for the Lord. They became brave and courageous. The only one who didn't die was John. He was exiled to Patmos where he wrote Revelation. James went from an unbeliever to the senior pastor of First Jerusalem Church. That's how I like to say it. James became the leader of the Jerusalem Church. He became an apostle. And Paul became the greatest missionary in world history. You know, they received the gospel graciously, but they also stood in the gospel faithfully. Paul actually uh, discerns a difference at the beginning of 1 Corinthians when he says, the gospel which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Listen, it's simple. Don't believe in vain. Don't let his grace go to waste. Work hard for the Lord. 
We don't sin so that grace may abound. We don't presumptuously sin. You know what presumptuously sinning means? It means sinning and saying, well, God will forgive me. That's not what grace is about. Grace is about turning our lives around so we can serve the Lord, and grace will continue to strengthen you in obedience. That's why Augustine said, grace is given not because we've done good works, but in order that we might be able to do them. In Luke 12, it says, to whom much is given, much is required. To quote Spider-Man, I can't believe I'm quoting Spider-Man in a sermon, (laughs) with great power comes great responsibility, right? If you've received a lot of grace, do something with that grace. 1 Peter 4 says, you've spent enough time in the past doing what non-Christians do. That time is over. It's time to walk in the grace of our Lord as we serve him. Bringing it back around to me, you know, when I think about my past, the Lord purchased me back from the grave eternally. I mean, that's something to be thankful for every single waking, breathing moment. And any time I would be tempted to return to my past, I can't help but think, what kind of person would I be after the Lord did all this for me if I didn't give my whole life for him? God's grace has delivered us and it's called us to work hard for the Lord. That's why Paul said, I worked harder than any of them. God's grace is sufficient for my past. God's grace is sufficient for my present. And here's the last one. God's grace is sufficient for my future. This is a very, very important qualifier to working hard for the Lord. Look what Paul says at the end of verse 10. Right after he says, I worked harder than any of them, He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This begs the question, is it us working when we work for the Lord? Or is it God working in us? Well, in some sense, is it us working? The answer is yes, in some sense. That's why Paul said, I worked harder than any of them, right? But then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, so is it God working in us as we work? Absolutely, yes. How can it be us working and God working at the same time? I don't know. That's just what the Bible says. We see the same thing. You can write down Philippians 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a literal imperative. Work it out. Tom's bringing up my illustration here. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) it says in Philippians 1 work out your salvation with fear and trembling that's that's telling us work it out right us but then it says it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure so just while you're working it out remember God's in you working it out us working God working I think about this when I prep sermons you know Uh, I can try to be diligent and work hard to bring the word of God to you but I never think to myself that I can do this apart from the Lord, right? I mean, if the Lord's not with me up here, nothing's going to get done. But I'm still called to work hard on the sermon. I know this can be a hard concept to understand, so um, I'm actually going to show you this through an illustration. I saw this from a pastor named Brian Wilkerson, and it really helped me. It's also kind of cheesy, so you'll probably laugh at me. My wife will definitely laugh at me in second service. But... It says in Ephesians 2 that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? So I brought something that helps me 
do good work outside. This is my uh, outside yard glove. And so in this illustration, you know, we're like this glove, okay? Now, one of the things that is very important as a Christian is reading our Bibles. We'd all agree with that, right? So let's see if we can get this glove to read that Bible. Glove, I'm going to talk to the glove. Glove, open the Bible. Nothing. Maybe what the glove needs is a little bit of motivation, inspiration. Glove, you are great. You are strong. Open the Bible. Nothing. I know what this glove needs. This glove needs discipleship. Discipleship is a big deal at our church, so I brought our all-church study material for this fall. Maybe the glove needs to open up this book. All right, glove. Open up this book and read this book. Man, this glove won't do anything. I know what it needs. It needs fellowship. We are big on our life groups at Prairie Bible Church, so I brought some other gloves that also do work outside (laughs) to give this glove some fellowship. All right, do you feel encouraged by your friends? All right, open the Bible. Nothing. What's wrong with this? You know what this glove needs? This glove needs a hand, right? <laughs> Just like this glove can't get anything done without a hand, this is what we're like without the grace of God flowing through our lives. And let me bring it home even a little bit more. How crazy would it be if you put a glove on and when you tried to do something, the glove rebelled against you and didn't let you get the work done? That'd be pretty crazy. Well, it's just as bad and strange and ridiculous when God is trying to work through us in his grace when we are believers in Jesus Christ and we don't let him. So we can't do anything apart from the Lord, but with the Lord, We can do all things. Does that make sense? All right. Well, as we get ready to close, I just want to encourage you that as you look to the future, God will not leave you on your own. You might be asking the question, well, Billy, how do I get some of this grace in my life? If you belong to Jesus Christ, you get it freely. That's the definition of grace. Unmerited favor, undeserved favor. You have God's grace flowing through you right now. Band, you can come up. But the first step to receiving grace is you have to commit your life to the Lord. You know, it's been said that the gospel is like two sides of the same coin. On one side of a coin, we see tails. That represents turning tail and leaving our life of sin. It's like repentance. On the other side of the coin, we see a head. That means heading toward Christ. For salvation in him alone. And once you take that step, you will have grace upon grace upon grace to meet your past, your present, and your future. I'm going to be over in the prayer room if you need prayer for any situation right now that you're facing.